Psalm 19.14 says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is where I trust we will end our time this morning together. But also it is where we begin as we, as we look to Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. And so if you haven't done so yet, open with me to Psalm 19 in your Bible. This is where we'll spend our time. And if you recall when I've preached in the past, I, I always tend to land on Psalms. And I, and I know that the last time that I preached, I believe I said that that particular Psalm was my, was my favorite Psalm. And I'm pretty confident that the time before that, and probably the time before that, and maybe even the time before that, I probably said that that particular psalm was my favorite psalm. Well, this morning, let me just say, this time, I really mean it, that this might be my favorite psalm before us, Psalm 19. Last time when I, when I preached, or when I spoke last from Psalm 119, I preached a sermon from there. I read during our scripture reading uh, some of the verses from this, from this chapter. And so maybe, maybe what I could do now is read to you all of Psalm 119, and then we'll, we'll preach from Psalm 19. But that might take too long as well. So hopefully you're there. We'll read God's word together, and then we'll break it down by different sections. Let's stand as we read in honor of God and his word, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May God be blessed through the reading of his word. You may be seated. As you are, let's bow our heads and ask for God's blessing on our time. Gracious Father, we, we love you this morning, and we, we come to this place and we find ourselves in, in need of you, where we, we've We've sung together, we've read your word together, and now we open up 
the words of your truth. And so my prayer is that our eyes, our ears, our hearts would be opened to hear what you would desire to teach us. May we be changed as we leave this place, knowing that you alone are our rock and our redeemer. May you be glorified in us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've titled my sermon this morning from Psalm 19, Look Around and Worship. As I thought about that title this week and even in the past weeks, I've been thinking about my driving. Now, I am a self-proclaimed really good driver. Really good. You could ask me and I'll, I'll confess it. I am a really good driver. But every so often while driving, I will happen to see something to my left or to my right, you know, squirrel or a restaurant that I didn't notice before or somebody biking or running in my way. And so I'm, I'm caught where I'm drifting to that side of the road. Does that ever happen to you? Maybe it's just me. But it happens to me. And, and usually it's during those times when my, my wife or my daughter will kind of just give me a nudge and I'll get back between those lines. Now, As I said, I'm a really good driver, and so that illustration is mostly hypothetical. But to give you a real illustration to exemplify that also, my son Jacob, I I have a son, Jacob, who loves to ride his bike. When I can't find him, he's out there on the sidewalk, hopefully not on the road, as I tell him not to. But he'll always ask, can I ride in the road, Dad, if you watch me? Can I ride in the road? And so I'll, I'll have to watch because whenever I watch him ride... He rides going this way, looking this way. Just not even a fear in his mind of oncoming crash that could be waiting for him. So my point with those illustrations are that oftentimes we end up drifting exactly where our eyes are looking. I believe that the text before us this morning will help us to look rightly toward God, his word, and his work. It will give us direction, but it will also bring joy and satisfaction to our souls. So let's jump in and get there. The psalm is is neatly broken into three sections for us, three mini-sermons, if you will. So we're going to have a three-part sermon series right here in our time remaining. Verses 1 through 6, we will see that we'll look at the world around us and be amazed at God's creation. Verses 1 through 6. In the second section, verses 7 through 11, we'll look at the word, scripture, God's word, and we'll be astounded. And then lastly, in the the third section together, verses 12 to 14, we'll look at your works and be abased, be humbled. And you can even put in parentheses next to your, his work. We'll look at the work of Christ and be humbled. So starting at section one, now that you've already filled out your outline, oh, okay, uh, you could do that, or you go away. As we look at section one, it says, we see first, right at the beginning, that God is not silent. Verse one says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. There's a creator of the universe, a God who exists. There's a God who is sovereignly in control over all things, and he hasn't just kept it to himself or kept us guessing on whether there is a God But he's told us who he is and just how powerful he truly is by looking at creation. Look at all the world, all that he has created, and be amazed. Verses 1 through 6 describe what many students of God's word would call general revelation. 
general revelation. That is, that which has been revealed about God, which is able to be seen, understood, and available to all people, all times, and all places. As we look at the world around it, we see the, the vastness of creation. It should serve as, as a pointer to an almighty creator, a pointer to an almighty God. One song that I, I recall describes creation as a symphony of praise with God as the composer and conductor. The words go like this of verse 1. The seasons well rehearsed begin with his downbeat. And on his cue the sun trumpets the dawn. The whirling winds swell in a mighty crescendo with each commanding sweep of his baton. The oceans pound the shore and march to his cadence. The galaxies all revolve in cosmic rhyme. The fall of raindrops all in wild syncopation as lightning strikes and thunder claps in time. And the chorus, the symphony of praise conducted by the ancient of days. Let all creation, great or small, lift their voices, one and all, in the symphony of praise. God's creation, it points us toward him and ultimately toward his glory. It testifies of his, his goodness and his greatness. If you look at verse 2, it, it describes it even further. It says, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. This is saying that there has, there has never been a time when God's glory is not fully on display. It's permanently on display at all times. It's unceasing, unwavering, day to day, all encompassing. Like, like a spring that doesn't stop flowing out. Or in practical terms, like a pot of boiling water when I make mac and cheese for my kids. Every day, God's glory is on display to all the world. And it's, it's this knowledge of God, general revelation that declares God's eternal power, his kindness, his faithfulness. It's an unending symphony of praise to God from the work of his hands. Verse 3 and 4 are known as the great soundless sermon. It says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In a powerful way, the sermon is, is booming. It's, it's screaming throughout all history, echoing through all of eternity that, that God exists. It transcends every culture, every language, every geographical boundary. Through creation, God has made himself known to the world. And lastly, verse 4 with 5 and 6, we see some imagery there. In verse 5 it says, and speaking of the sun, end of verse 4, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. The rising, it's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. It's descri- this is describing the way in which 
The night sky provides a tent to the sun so that every morning it, it comes forth as, as a bridegroom with, with its radiance as a brand new day. A couple months ago, I, I was able to be a part of a wedding that I officiated, and, and shortly before the ceremony, I remember seeing the groom. And uh, he, he looked a little nervous, kind of pale, hope he was going to be okay. But as we began to talk about his bride, his eyes lit up. He began to get excited for, for this day that had come that he had been waiting for, preparing for. Today would be the day, that would be the day that he would marry his bride. He would see her as his wife. That's what the sun is like every morning. It bursts forth with joy and, and radiance that literally screams the name of God to the entire universe. That's the first imagery there. The second imagery, it says, is it's like a strong man runs its course with joy. This could be translated as a champion, a, a trained, prepared athlete who runs his course with joy. Now, I know it's hard to tell, but I am not a runner. I know, I know. But a few years ago, I, I did have the, the joy, if you will, of running in a 10K in Chicago. And as I was running this race, I finished it, okay, get that out of the way, I was captivated by the beauty of the rising sun of the Chicago skyline. So naturally, as, as I did, I, I began to slow down. In fact, I even stopped and pulled up my iPhone and was just taking a couple pictures because the skyline was just so magnificent that morning. The race finished, and, and I was meeting with some of the others that, that had run it with me, and they were like, what, what you, you stopped during the race? You could have had a faster time per minute. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, of this passage, well-prepared, trained athletes, they find joy in running the race. I found the joy in the beauty of the sunrise. You could figure out where the analogy goes. It kind of breaks down there. But, but as, we look at, as we look at the text before us, we consider how God chooses the sun as his reference point. This part of creation that, that sheds light on us like nothing else. We're not hidden from its heat, the warmth that it brings. Yesterday was a great example of that. And so maybe as, as we think about this description of creation that screams God's name to all the world, maybe it begins to help you to ask the question in your mind, well, if God is so clear in creation... If he demonstrates to all the universe that he exists, then why doesn't everyone believe in him? Why are, why are people not humbled, amazed at the world around them, creation, and coming to him? Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 1 as he thinks about creation, as he thinks about the world. Paul writes this in verse 18, chapter 1 of Romans. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So you know what that's saying right there? It says that, that we're sinners. You and I have committed sin against God. And so, so the reason why people don't instantly believe in God and fall to their knees in worship is because we are all unrighteous sinners. 
our minds, our hearts, even our eyes, oftentimes are clouded by sin. In fact, Scripture says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and because of our love for sin, we suppress the truth of who God is. We should look at the world around us and be amazed at the glory of God, the power of His might, all that we see in creation. But many do not. Sometimes we don't. Have you seen God's glory in creation and been amazed? Or would you say that you have been suppressing the truth of who God is because of your own love for unrighteousness? As glorious and breathtaking as God's revelation through creation is, all of this pales in comparison with the glory of God that he has revealed in his word. John Calvin said, From nature we may know only the hands and feet of God, but from Scripture we may know his very heart. And so that brings us to our second section here again as we as we look at the world around us and are amazed but there's a a second revelation that exists for verses 7 through 11 we look at the word and are astounded you see general revelation can tell us a lot about god his attributes his character but it can't tell us how to know god in a personal way it can't tell you how to have a personal relationship with him That comes through special revelation given to us in his word. Look at this text with me in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And it goes on to describe six characteristics of God's word. It says it's the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the rules. And it describes it by adjectives, saying that it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's righteous. Oh, pardon me, true and righteous as well. And then it gives how it helps us, revives our soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, is altogether righteous. What a beautiful description of God's word. And so what we have Before us, what David wants us to know is that what you have, what we have in our hands is special. It's specific for us from God. The law of the Lord is perfect. The word there for perfect means flawless. So I believe what David is trying to do here is to give a a contrast of Scripture with general revelation. He's saying that, as I already said, general revelation gives us some things about God, but We need the Scripture. The Scripture gives us life. It gives us wisdom and joy. That general revelation cannot give us alone. Peter gives us a firsthand account of this testimony. 2 Peter 1, Peter is is telling about the time that he stood with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so he's recalling this account and and he says this, For when he being Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. He said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So picture this. This is Peter's words here. He's talking about when he was with Jesus, literally like 
right here with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in the presence, and all of a sudden, the voice of God comes saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I don't know about you, that would be pretty powerful. But listen to what Peter says as he goes on to describe it further. In verse 19, he says, goes on to say, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And then verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? Peter is saying, that we have something greater than even that miraculous voice that he heard. First-hand account with Jesus, heard the voice of God. He's declaring we have a greater prophecy, a greater revelation given us in the word of God. This ought to move us. It ought to astound us of God's glory. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That means Scripture gives life. God gives us life, and he does it through his word. Just as he spoke things into creation, into existence, so we come to spiritual life through God's word. James 1.18, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word gives us life. How does it give us life? It gives us life by, by generating faith in the heart, by the Holy Spirit power in us. John 20, 31, my kids can quote a portion of this from Awana. It says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may, what, have life in his name. So the Bible says that you are saved by grace through faith. And so as I, as I believe in the word of God, I am regenerated. I am given new life. This is why in Romans 10, Paul can write the importance of God's word in salvation. In verse 13 of Romans 10, Paul would say, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he goes on to say, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, you've, you've placed your faith and trust in Christ as your personal Savior, it was by this spiritual work of God's word that you have been given new life. The word of God is is the seed that brought all of us to faith in Christ. Another translation for verse 7 from revives the soul is that it, it converts the soul. The word of God reveals amazing things to us, to our minds, to our hearts. 
It causes our conscience to tell us that something is wrong. I've, I know I've done something wrong, but I don't really understand why that is or how that is. What, what is it in me that is making me feel as though I've sinned? It's, it's God's word through his spirit convicting us. Paul would write it this way in Romans 7. If it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. He goes on to say in verse 10, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. You see, when the word of God comes, it identifies our sin against a holy God. And so what Paul is saying is that the law is what drives us to Jesus by showing us that we're sinners before God. Condemned we are to die, but then it's the gospel that draws us to Jesus and show us how loved we are. Ephesians 2, and I, I read the earlier portion of this earlier describing our sinfulness, but it goes on to say that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It is the scripture that revives us, the scripture that converts our soul, the scripture that gives us life. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, and maybe you are spiritually dry, it is the scripture that revives us. Matthew 4 says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Just as we need physical nourishment so we must feed on this word of God. Secondly, I want you to see that scripture makes you wise. The end of verse 7, it says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And I want you to look at this along with the end of verse 8, where it says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word there for sure means it's trustworthy. The word for pure means without error. So listen as I read this, putting these meanings together and how it sounds. The word of God makes us wise by enlightening our eyes to that which is true. And I've added in a bracket, over and against the lies of the world. See, we must fill our minds, saturate our minds and our hearts in the word of God so that as we constantly get bombarded by the lies of the world, we know what is true. We can keep our minds stayed on truth. The world would say that it's, it's all about me. It's about my satisfaction, my fulfillment, my joy. But God's word trains us to know that life is all about Jesus. We were made as a creation to worship and bring glory to the creator and that alone will satisfy the world will tell me well i'm supposed to be happy and that's what life is about is is happiness but but as i look at god's word and as i study it i find that god's desire is not that i would be happy but rather that i would be more holy that i would be more conformed to the image of his son jesus it doesn't mean that there's there will not be those times when hardship comes trial, life. 
But as we see God's word as truth for our souls, we will look at suffering differently. The trials that we face, we will still, in the midst of those, be able to have joy because we know God's word is truth. Finally, I want you to see in verse 8 that the scripture of the Lord is right, rejoicing the heart. It says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word there for right means a straight edge. Straight edge. Many people my age and younger don't even know what a straight edge is because we just ask our dad or grandpa what a straight edge is. But what I found is a straight edge is this tool, pretty cool tool, that really is the standard. It's what you measure everything else by. And so with Scripture... As a straight edge, you don't see if it's true by by comparing it to an outside standard, but rather all standards shall be judged by Scripture. Scripture is truth. It proves to be right in guiding my life, and then I see that in following it, I find great reward. Look at verse 10 to 11. It says, It is more to be desired than gold. It satisfies you like drippings from the honeycomb. I've never had drippings from the honeycomb, but my understanding is, I'm willing to learn, but my understanding is that once the honeycomb drippings kind of reach the outside air, they're not quite as sweet as before they are. So I don't know how you do that. If I'm not going to try. But the point is, it's sweeter, it's greater than the sweetest thing you could think of. And so in David's time frame, it was the drippings of the honeycomb. So you could insert in your note there the sweetest thing that you know. A three Musketeers bar. That, that's what I got. Okay, so it's, it's sweeter than that. As I look at the Word of God, As it revives my soul, it makes me wise to understand truth. It brings me to a place where where the rules are not burdensome, but they are my delight. My reward becomes joy. If you look at the psalm, you might might think, well, shouldn't our delight be in God's promises and, and God's blessings? Well, doesn't Scripture tell us that we find joy and delight in those things? We probably do, but as I've been looking at this psalm and other psalms, Psalm 1, which says, I will delight, day and night I will delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it. Psalm 119, again and again, it talks about where do I find my delight? Where do I, what do I seek after? What do I pursue? It's the law, the, the law, the law. The word of God is where we find delight, where it becomes so much of the reward that it no longer is burdensome. So perhaps this morning, you're saying to me, well, that sounds great, Mike, but I don't know if I'm finding that joy in the word like I should. How could it not be burdensome? Well, let me encourage you to, to keep, keep with me, hang with me. We've looked first at general revelation, that is creation. We've looked also at special revelation, God's word. I'd like to suggest in this next section that we will look at the ultimate revelation of God, His Son, Jesus Christ. Look at your work and be abased. Look at His work and be humbled. Section 3, verses 12 to 14. 
Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I'll stop there. David kind of shifts gears here a little bit as he turns his focus on Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate expression of who God is. Hebrews would tell us that in, in time past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Colossians 1 says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The Gospel of John says that he, Jesus, is the one who is at the Father's side and is revealing the Father to us. So ultimate revelation of God comes through Jesus Christ. I love how this psalm starts with creation and the sun, S-U-N, and ends with, oh, and it points to a creator, and it ends with the son, Jesus, S-O-N, pointing to the Redeemer. Look at verse 12 with me as we see, we will see where Jesus comes in so clearly. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I, I have to admit, I, I wrestled with this. I feel like section one and section two are so neatly packed. And then we get to verse 12 and David goes on and starts talking about sin. Oh, David, come on, it was going so well. But what David is doing here is he's, he's beginning to evaluate his heart as he looks at creation around him and is amazed, as he looks at God's word before him and is astounded. Now he begins to, to look internally at his own heart and begins to ask himself these questions, even this rhetorical question, who can discern his errors? He knows the answer to that. No one can. He refers here to some hidden faults, secret sins. These are referring to the sins that are deceptive to us because they're, they're in our blind spot. We can't see them, but, but other people around us that know us and love us can see them. And so that is why we need brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside us, to hold us accountable. There's these sins that are blind to us, like pride, greed, jealousy. They, they sneak up on us, and afterward, we find out that we did this, and we, we ask for forgiveness. This is why David asks for mercy here. Declare me innocent. From hidden faults, he writes. And then he moves on from that to presumptuous sins. These are the sins that we know God's will, what he has said, and we defiantly go against it. We want our own way. We want to do what we want, and we're willing to sin to get it. Here, David is not asking for mercy, but rather he's asking for victory over it. What does he say? He says, let them not have dominion over me. What is he saying? He's saying there is no way to escape sin in this life. So he asks for mercy. He asks for victory. But then we come to verse 14 and, and there's kind of a shift or even a, even a twist. As he, as he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. It's like there's, there's something missing there. What, what happened in David's heart? Because as, as we look at what the word for acceptable is, 
It's a word that is used by God throughout Scripture that refers to a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And so David here, on the one hand, he's saying, now there, there's no way that I can be free from sin. At the very least, there's even sins that I, I can't even see. They're hidden. I, I can't escape sinning. But then on the other hand, he proclaims confidently to let the words of my mouth and my heart be without blemish in your sight. How can he say that there's no way to escape sin, but yet also say, let me be without blemish in your sight? How can he say that? Here it is. It's, it's in Jesus. It's in the gospel. Look at the last words of this psalm, where David says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David looked forward to God being his redeemer. The one that would ultimately forgive him for his sin. All of his sin. Not just victory over it in the time, but forever. We on this side of Jesus, on, on this side of the cross, this side of history, we can look back and see Jesus as the ultimate redeemer. Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus and what he has done on the cross for you, your sins are transferred to him. He's paid for them and his reward for living a perfect life is transferred over to you through faith. You can stand right before God and you can be redeemed by his blood. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. If you don't know Jesus as your personal savior, I hope that this text before us gives us a glimpse of understanding that we can look at the world around us in all of its beauty of creation and see that God exists, that God is the ultimate creator. We could look at the, at the word that we could hold and read in our hands and be astounded that God has given us a sure word upon which we can live and guide and know joy in our lives. But ultimately, we can look at his work through Jesus on the cross and be humbled and come to the place where we can confidently be accepted, be without blemish, because he alone is our rock and our redeemer. So this morning, I, I pray that this truth would drive you to call on him to save you and make him your savior. Let's pray together. Father, we, we love you and we recognize that you alone, you alone give grace to us. And in your mercy and in your faithfulness, you call us to yourself, draw us to your son. You even give us the faith that we have to call out to you. And so this morning, as, as we've heard your word, 
May you draw us to yourself. May you drive us to call upon you. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Help us to make lives, make our lives pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.